Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine enthusiasts who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, Michelle introduces you to a prominent woman and takes a peek inside her life. Welcome to today's Wine Country Women podcast. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and this is a special edition. This is a Father's Day edition, and I am speaking with Tor Kenworth, who is a spectacular Napa Valley vintner for almost 50 years. And I am at his wonderful house, and I have the great pleasure of speaking with him today. Tor. Thank you, Michelle. Spectacular is a word that's not usually given me, but uh, I'll, I'll take it for today being close to Father's Day. Thank you. I'm a proud and happy father for sure. Well, you are spectacular, so I can't <laughs> believe that word hasn't been used more often. Well, let's talk about Father's Day here initially. You are a father to two kids. I am. So some favorite memories that you might have with your children, maybe a vacation or a holiday memory or... Oh, there's so many, you know, uh, you didn't prep me on this. (laughs) I would have made a list this morning, but off the top of my head, I remember we planted a little vineyard not far from here. David Abreu actually planted it for me. And uh, what we would do is we'd pick the vineyard in the morning with a bunch of friends, families that we knew that had kids our kids' age. And they were, I think Cooper was about, uh, you know, five years old, Molly uh, seven years old, and the kids would come out and help. They, they, they thought this was so much fun. And... Uh, uh, I have pictures of the flatbed truck, the kids picking grapes, eating grapes in the vineyard, traveling with us to, to crush the grapes, make a little wine, family wine together. And I look back on those photos and you go, wow, that was really a fun part in time. You know, the family making a little bit of wine together off their little vineyard that we had out in front of the, the house at that time. What's interesting is, I, I guess the child labor that uh, uh, I imposed on the kids resulted in neither one of them wanting to get into the wine business <laughs> later in their lives. <laughs> well, I'm sure they love your wine. They do, and and they come and they uh, pick up a case every now and then and share it with their friends, and, and they're very proud of Dad and Mom, but uh, one wanted to go. Both of them, I'll say this, is and I'm so happy about this as a father, is they have extraordinary moral compasses. So they've taken their their careers, careers which they chose, and we've supported, and and both careers are are really built around helping other people. So one's one's in medicine and the other's in film, but takes all his free time and and, uh, does a lot of charity work in the area. So somehow, somewhere way along the line, uh, both kids ended up with, uh, you know, a, a moral compass that as parents we're really proud of. Is there a lesson that you think that you taught them along the way that's still with them today? Well, I'm going to give my wife a huge amount of that credit. I, I think we've always encouraged them to follow their own dreams because that's what we've done, both Susan and I. 
and help them along the way, certainly, to pursue those paths, uh, even though they're not the wine business. But again, uh, I would have to give Susan the lion's share of, of raising two wonderful kids. Okay, you're you're being so modest. Ah, how about being honest? I think. <laughs> how about this? Which one of your children is more like you? They're both complicated, like like <laughs> like me. I would say, I think you could take any day of the week, and you could pick out traits that you go, "Oh my gosh, I sure hope I didn't pass that along." And you see it there. I, I think they picked up all my bad traits. No. <laughs> Maybe a few good ones. I'm sure a lot of good ones. Some advice that you might have passed on to them that, that might stand out? You know, it's, it's fundamental. It's chase your dreams. Okay. Find, find something in life that you really believe in and you want to devote your professional life to and just go at it. Don't let anything get in your way. And uh, both of them did exactly that. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. So I, I sure wish they were helping me at the winery a little more. <laughs> Is there a gift that you might have received from them other than life itself? Well, um, that's really interesting. You know, my son occasionally does a little video for me. That might have great meaning. To well, it, it did. Uh, you know, I said, can you do, uh, uh, and it's on our website, uh, can you do something? For the uh, the company he came up, spent a couple days, and he's a professional filmmaker, so he got right into it. And then a month or two months later, he sent me this video, and he said, "Everybody at the studio here likes this. Tell me what you think." And it's 90 seconds. It's not long, and it was so perfect. He did the music himself. You know, we still have it on the site. It's about it's about five years old now, and I never get tired of looking at it. That's they do little things that you, it's not the big things. It, for me, it's the the little surprises that, and I'm trying to think of something that Molly did recently that uh, it was just so cool. Anyway. That caught you off guard. Caught me off guard, and it was it was the perfect present. Do you have any idea what's in store for you this Father's Day? Well, it's going to be a it's going to be a huge Father's Day, maybe the biggest Father's Day I've ever had other than the birth of both kids is uh, our daughter's pregnant and expecting our first grandchild shortly after Father's Day. So, I don't need to tell anybody out there that's that's a huge event. So, Absolutely. we're we're looking obviously looking forward to that. Well, greatly. The little one could come early. Yeah, you never know. It's out of <laughs> my control, true. out of our control. All of ours. Well, let's dive into more about you now. You know, you have this great name, Tor. Your parents were kind of interesting. Bohemian parents. Yes. Uh, I guess it is a little odd. People say, are you Scandinavian? And if you've met me, you probably say, not really. He's not blue-eyed blonde. He doesn't carry a hammer, so he's not that Thor or Tor. Right. Uh, Dad was a writer. Mom was a painter, Bohemians for sure. Dad liked a play called High Tor. The Tor in that play is Celtic for high rock or rocks. Sometimes appears in the New York Times puzzle section. So I became Tor. I have a sister, Tandy, and another sister, Kim, and a brother, Rory. So it was a, we were all a little odd. 
thank God no moonbeams. Yes. So, you know, we didn't, he didn't go way out there, but uh, they, I grew up in a very bohemian family with actors, writers, musicians, running in and out of the house at all hours of the day. Uh, it was a good life. So having a name Tor, is it a blessing or a curse? Or it's, a little of both? <laughs> it had certainly never been a curse. Uh, I never had to defend myself in school. And usually if somebody called out my name, I was the one that would turn and, and know who they were addressing. Right. Everyone remembers you. It, yeah, it's it's it's... Well, what happened, too, is when we, I started our own label, uh, the obvious choice would be your last name if you're doing a family. And this is with the wineries, all family-owned. There's no secret partners. Uh, we, we've pretty much built the company from scratch, and it's all been family hard work. Uh, but you would think, use the last name. That's pretty standard. My last name is Ken Ward, very much like Ken Wood, which is another winery. And I remember all, a lot of years while I was at Behringer, people would say, oh, yes, I've been to your winery, Kenwood. And I would have to. So instead of getting a lot of lawyers or getting involved with a lot of lawyers, uh, uh, Somebody suggested I use my first name, and it worked. So you mentioned Behringer. Yes. You were there for 27? 25, 26 years. Yeah. 20 years. Um, I was vice president in front and fun. Uh, well, actually, vice president, people would say, in charge of all the fun. In charge of all I the was, fun? I was. <laughs> I was. I had the job people would dream of, uh, which was working on the... Uh, the special projects, the private reserve program, uh, barrel fermentations and, and Chardonnay, uh, Petritus winemaking. So the, 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 the real, what I consider the real fun in the industry is trying to do cutting edge stuff and going after world class wines, trying to feel that you can fit in with any wines from any region any place in the world as far as quality. And uh, part of that was also developing culinary programs. So I became, uh, over the years that I was very involved in building programs at Behringer, close friends with Julia Child. Uh, the last couple of years, I escorted her around the, the Napa Valley, which was amazing because she would wear me out <laughs> that's amazing uh, i was much younger than her and we'd get around 11 o'clock someplace and i'd start drooping but she'd still be going strong uh, an amazing uh wonderful woman to spend time with because she, she walked around and really inspired people and made people that she came in contact with feel special she had that gift uh and and a lot of famous chefs, Gary Danko, who has a wonderful restaurant in San Francisco, uh, worked for me for uh, six or seven years, cooked our, uh, our wedding dinner, lots of birthdays, and of course, many other great winery events. Uh, yeah, it was a great time in the Napa Valley. How could you leave? Uh, all things must pass. Uh -huh. I think George Harrison 
had an album cover on with that title on it. And uh, after 25 years, uh, we were going through changes. Mm -hmm. We had just sold the company. Oh. I had some, thanks to management, some stock options that I could turn into the building blocks of a new winery, which would be our own winery. And the timing was perfect. It was it was just perfect. You know, it's one of those those nights you sit outside in Napa Valley, sun setting. You're letting your mind drift. You possibly have a nice glass of wine in your hand, and you go. You've always said you were going to do this. You've always wanted to do this. The timing could not be better right now. Why don't you do it? And I did in 2001. We started uh, this small brand and built it from scratch. And here you are 20 years later. 20 years later, still in the wine business. <laughs> but what's great is you have the same winemaking team. Yeah, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the concept of musical winemakers. It takes a lot of years to understand a vineyard and how you manage, when you pick, what you're looking for out of that vineyard and how you manage it in the winery. So I have a very strong belief the best wines on a consistent level from year to year are wineries and teams that have been together for a period of time. I've been very fortunate with Jeff Ames, who's been our winemaker for quite some time, because you know we think alike. He's a complete cork dork. Uh, we love ripping corks from all over the world. Uh, and trying to learn. So he's got that mindset that I love. Always curious. Staying curious to me is one of the most important little traits that you can carry around with you for your life and stay young because of that. And he stays curious. He knows the wines we both want to make. So it's a good team. And I've been very fortunate with Jeff. The most important thing, I guess, is that he knows the vineyards that we're working with. Well, and to that point, your wines are like the best blocks and very small quantities of each. You're producing wines, very small quantities of wines from each of those blocks. Yeah, I look at Napa Valley, and I think a few of my peers do too, more like Burgundy than Bordeaux. Bordeaux thought of, with a lot of the chateaus making, you know, 10 to 60,000 cases usually large tracts of land or multiple large tracts of land that they're working with. Burgundy's much more fragmented, much more grower-oriented uh, than Bordeaux, and, and that's the business model that I think most of small producers like myself face. So our challenge is to get to know the best growers, earn their respect, and work with what we consider the best blocks in those vineyards. Secret to success. So I'm curious, I mean, you do have some superb vineyards. Vine Hill, Beckstopper, your wines are consistently 100 points. <laughs> we, we, we've got a lot of 100 points. We're very fortunate. Have you been in those vineyards for almost 20 years? No, uh, more, so fif it about 15. Yeah, okay. I, I think we've been in Vine Hill Ranch now for over 10 years, uh, Tokalon for about 15 years. It's been a gradual uh, process. It didn't happen all in one year. It didn't yeah. happen in the start. It was... Uh, it you was, found your way, and then you... 
Yeah. You found a happy place. We found a very happy place. <laughs> We're still having fun. Along the way, I read an article that talked about your mentors. Uh-huh. You had some, some really fabulous mentors. Very fortunate. Andre Chilichev. Robert know, Mandavi. Yeah, Bob. Bob. Bob never really as a winemaker, more of a marketing person. Yeah, I'm I, sure. You know, I, my, and it's a personal thing. I think Bob's genius was really more in the marketing area than he, he was a visionary winemaker or vintner. But I think if if you really isolate his genius, it was more in the marketing area. Absolutely. Andre more of a winemaker. Right. Who do you think was your the standout mentor and why? There was a couple of other fellows mentioned, too. Well, we had some consultants in the Behringer days that uh, taught me a lot early on. Yeah, well, Ed always, uh, Ed, more for the work ethic that he has when he started to really develop the private reserve program. Oh, Warren. Warren Winarski. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Warren more for, Warren looked at winemaking as an art form which is interesting, and to me it's art and science, and he tried to articulate that, and I think he did well doing that, and of course, you know, right right time, right place with the Paris tasting, and the success that his brand had early on. Man, there's, you know, Joe Heights was a huge influence on me. Joe, very iconoclastic, but Joe picked a little riper than a lot of his peers at the time. He was looking for more of the 24, 25 as opposed to 22, 23 bricks and uh, had a clear vision of the type of wines that he wanted to make. And I, I really respected the clarity that he had and, and he was not muddied at all. He wasn't influenced by what other people were telling him. He, uh, he, he had a he had a clear, clear vision of the wines that he wanted to make, and he made them. And to, you know, to his credit, these wines are some of the most highly collectible older wines, the Martha's Vineyards, for instance, from the 60s and 70s, that uh, California's ever made. Well, let's get back to tour wines. What is a takeaway characteristic of a tour wine? Well, we, we're not a big fan of the of the pushed out, you know, big big boy wines. I like to think that we we do hit that point of physiological maturity without going past it. Uh, maybe an easy way to describe that is you, you and we're headed into that period of. Uh, farmers markets where you know some of these fruits start coming in at the height of the ripeness we're not quite there yet we are with a few fruits but anyway take a peach it's that peach that you have later at the farmers market that's still firm and you bite into it and it's almost so sweet it it hurts you but it's still firm still crunchy and it's still so sweet so somebody took the time to grow that peach in a tree that wasn't overproduced, but just right to get that peach ripe and still firm to the farmer's market. So it's not an overproduced tree. It's probably not an overwatered tree. Uh, It's a tree that the farmers worked with for years to decades, depending on the the farmer. And uh, it reflects the height of the season picked at the right time. 
So I'm still trying to, I, when, what Jeff and I aim for is fruit that tastes ripe, hasn't started to over dimple in any way. The seeds have started to mature so that you have a walnut as opposed to a green taste to them. But it doesn't resemble a raisin or anything overripe in any way. So you try to nail that tight little window. So I like to think that the wines have, you know, a generosity of flavor and fruit. Don't go into excess uh, ripeness and reflect the, what I think is, is the hallmark of great Napa Valley wines. You still have great acidity. You have a brightness to it. Uh, yet you have all those flavors. Wow. <laughs> I want one right now. <laughs> Glass of that. Robert Parker said, and I quote, Tor is the consummate connoisseur of many things, including music, wine, and food. So it is not surprising he is able to translate his passion and discriminating taste into an impressive portfolio of wines. Yeah, Bob. Bob's an interesting guy. Uh, I tasted with him. Well, geez, probably 25 years, maybe more, when he was really active. And uh, I'm. I've. I know he's very controversial with a lot of people, but I've always found him to be a true gentleman. Maybe the most brilliant taster I've ever sat down with. Yeah, he, he had an incredible memory for the wines that he tasted. Yeah, he, to me, he's almost a savant. And I know a lot of people have some problems with the ripeness part, but he loved wines, too, that were in balance in a lot of European wines. So Bob and I would occasionally have, have meals together, and he gravitated toward really refined wines. Loved the big ones, but uh, he, he had an appreciation of a much wider spectrum of wine than I think most people do. So... He knew that I loved European wines too, uh, and we we've shared some, as we've shared some shared some good European wines together uh, when we got together. And yeah, I I have probably a more respect for Bob than I think a lot of my peers do, and and that's based on spending a lot of time with him. Uh, those are kind words that he said. We do like we do like shared some of the same music taste too. So <laughs> that was maybe why that slipped in there. Learn more about the women who live in wine country when you purchase one of our lifestyle books at winecountrywomen.com. Well, on the personal note, let's let's start talking a little bit more about your personal life. What kind of music do you like? Well, I had a jazz club with a couple guys before I got in the wine business. Well, tell me more about that. This was, uh, I'd, I'd gone to Vietnam, come back, made a vow to myself that I'd been beaten up enough, and, and life was going to be really devoted to things that I believed in. After, you know, finishing school, college, started a jazz club with a bunch of friends in Southern California. We had Stan Getz, Oscar Peterson, the CTI artists. We did uh, stand-up stuff, uh, Steve Martin doing uh, early stand-up before he was uber-famous. Uh, blowing up balloons and and doing a, a one-man show. Lily Tomlin. Oh wow! Uh, we did Chuck Berry uh, on New Year's, which was a whole other story. Yeah, I got very involved in music, uh, and about the same time through people that I was uh, working with or developing friendships with, uh, they introduced me to wine. 
So I owe the music business a lot in that it introduced me to to people who had wine cellars and knew a lot more about wine than I did at that time. You know, I, I, all of a sudden I needed to read and learn everything I could possibly learn about wine. They asked me to come to Napa Valley to select wines for the, some stores that a friend of mine owned. And I would come up here in the mid-70s on shopping tours. I didn't have a lot of money, so I camped at the both the Napa State Park. Oh, wow. Would roll out of my sleeping bag in the morning and go wine shopping. So it was... A different time. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great way to be introduced to Napa Valley. Again, you know, I came up here with pennies in my pocket. And look where you are now. Well, there's still a few pennies in my pocket. Yes, there's, there's a, yeah, just a few, mm. just a few. Did, I have to ask, did you play an instrument? Never well. Okay, <laughs> that's <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> but you had a great appreciation for music. I <laughs> love music, still have a great appreciation. I could never consider myself a great musician in any way. Okay. I, I, I played very amateurishly, and uh, I had fun. That's but, all that counts, yeah. right? Curious is, I'm sure you've done quite a bit of traveling. Is there a trip that you've taken that you have fond memories of that you can share? Well, in, in the early days uh, at Behringer, we had an import division. So I spent a lot of time in the growing areas of Europe. So uh, certainly Burgundy, Bordeaux, the Rhone Valley. Um, we imported wines from Germany, from Portugal, from Spain. So I was fortunate to travel a lot in the 80s, early 90s, to uh, wine growing regions and sit down with winemakers and pick their brains. And I loved it. Uh, you know, I was, I was an executive so I could stay at two, three star Michelin inns and so on. And uh, yeah, I, I lived the life that a lot of people would pay a lot of money to live and I was getting paid to do it. So I look back on those as uh, extraordinary experiences I love to fly fish, hmm. so I took a fly fishing trip. I take fly fishing trips to all different places in the world now. What's one of your favorite places to fly the fish? Seychelles Islands are interesting, and then of course up in uh, Alaska for um, for um, for uh, rainbows. Before we kind of wrap things up, I have to talk to you about what I'm going to call the magic moment when Phil Mickelson drank from the <laughs> Wanamaker Trophy. Yeah, that was that was out that came out of the blue for sure. I've known Phil and, and Amy now for a period of time. Uh, they came up and visited us. They said they were gonna do a tasting and, and lunch and, and Susan cooked a nice little lunch and we did started around eleven o'clock one day and they were still in the house at, at five. And Susan basically kicked him out of the house. No but way. <laughs> they overstayed their welcome. But we, we stayed friends. And, and uh, when he won the PGA tournament and set the record as being the oldest professional golfer to win a major, you know, I sent him, a, I sent him and I sent Amy a little bottle, too. Because it was a birthday, I think. It was. And, you know, it was just a, uh, with a little note on it, you know, to the home team. 
congratulations. I had absolutely no idea he was going to open up that wine and put it in the Wanamaker. And uh, it was as shocking to me as, as it was, I think, to many. But we have had so many emails and shout-outs and stuff since that it's, it's been a lot of fun. He called me about two days after all that news broke, and it got a little, went a little viral, and we had a good chuckle about it. What a problem to have. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's those little things that you don't plan or count on or even expect would ever happen that happened to you that keeps a little spice in life. It was truly a magic moment, and the wine was has the word magic in it right? yeah yeah well there you go there you go so it was it was meant to be when it is all over oh geez i'm not dying to <laughs> no anytime soon but, i hope but how do you want to be remembered i guess just somebody that truly enjoyed what he was doing and hopefully did a good job at it you know simply that it'd be great if the kids, and I'm sure that they will, stay on the trajectory that they are as being just really wonderful people. That's important to me, too. And now that I've got grandchildren, if they could carry on that tradition, that's, that's all you can hope for. Thank you, Tor. Thank you. Visit WineCountryWomen.com to join our exclusive list so you can be the first to learn about upcoming offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new edition of Wine Country Women.